chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. While uh, the portion we're going to pay particular attention to tonight will be verses 22 to 26, Jesus' healing of a blind man at Bethsaida, we're actually going to start reading at verse 11 of chapter 8, and we'll read through uh, Mark 9, uh, verse 1. Let's read together God's Word. Pharisees came and began to argue with him, that is Jesus, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And Jesus sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them and got into the boat again and went to the other side. Now they, that's the disciples, had forgotten to bring bread and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And Jesus cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, and how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Seven. And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? And they came to Bethsaida, and some of the people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him, home to, uh, he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this, to, and he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father 
with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. We uh, will not uh, cover all these verses, uh, but these are uh, fantastic verses, and I pray the Lord will make them profitable to us. So let's ask for his help now. Oh Lord, as we open your word, we pray that you would open our eyes so that we would see wonderful things, that we would see Jesus, and that we would be encouraged by his grace and his power to heal us and give us the ability to see him clearly. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This uh, past week, Ligonier Ministries released its biennial uh, State of Theology report. And the report gives a survey of uh, 3,000 Americans uh, on questions related to key theological topics uh, like the Bible, uh, the nature of truth, Christianity's relationship uh, to other world religions, uh, and uh, more questions. And participants were also asked questions about Jesus. When asked, 52% of Americans surveyed agreed incorrectly with the statement, Jesus was a great teacher but he was not God. Now, this doesn't surprise me. What did surprise me is that when they narrowed those surveyed uh, to those who considered themselves uh, evangelical respondents, 30% of so-called evangelicals agreed with this statement saying that Jesus was not God. 30% of evangelicals stand in contradiction to the Gospel of John, which says, in the beginning was the Word, referring to Jesus as we read, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Similarly problematic were the responses to the question, uh, do you agree uh, that Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God? More than half of evangelicals surveyed agreed with this statement that Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God, despite the fact that the church has condemned such a view as heresy. So this is in contradiction to the Bible's teaching that Jesus is the uncreated creator of all things, as we saw in John 1, verse 3. So for this reason, the church confesses in the Nicene Creed, as we often read, that Jesus is God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. Now, even if there was uh, confusion over the nature of the question asked, or there is a larger margin of error than we'd like to see, the survey illustrates for us that there is a lot of confusion, even within the church, about who Jesus is. Now, in the Bible, uh, the biblical writers often make use of the uh, idea of sight to speak of spiritual understanding or perception. It's like how you and I might say, uh, my eyes were opened uh, suddenly to how foolish I had been acting, or I began to see things in a whole new way. One of the ways that the Bible uh, speaks in this way are, uh, is how it speaks about those who uh, do not, are not able to understand spiritual truths. The Bible speaks of these people as being blind. So Paul, for example, in 2 Corinthians 4 says that Satan has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. So every day, you and I are living among people who as they work and as they shop and as they live and as they die, they are blind. 
The Bible also uses the language of sight with respect to Christians. In Acts 26, Paul says that God gave him a mission to the Gentiles that their eyes might be opened so that they would turn from the power of Satan to the power of God. So not by any smarts or efforts on our part, to be a Christian is to be someone who you've had your eyes opened to the realities of God in Christ. Now in Mark 8, this connection between physical sight and spiritual sight is the key to understanding Jesus' healing of the blind man. Mark intends for us to see Jesus' healing of this man who could not see as a parable, as an illustration of a deeper, more problematic blindness, a spiritual blindness to who Jesus is as the suffering Messiah. Surprisingly, though, it's not just those who aren't following Jesus who have a vision problem. Though people who are uh, truly not Christian, uh, they don't have their eyes opened And Jesus does need to do a work to open those eyes as we see elsewhere. Our story shows that those who follow Jesus are not immune to problems with spiritual sight. And so we need to continue as as Christians to have our spiritual sight corrected by Jesus. In the healing of the blind man, we're meant to see that Jesus' power to open the eyes of his disciples is not something he only does once at our conversion. He is able and He is willing not only to bring us out of darkness as we uh, come out of darkness and into light when we come to faith, but He is able to bring us out of dimness and into a clearer vision of who He really is as the suffering Messiah. And He's able to give us a clearer vision of how we are to follow in His steps as His disciples. Now, while our focus today uh, is in the healing of the blind man in verses 22 to 26, we can't understand clearly what God is teaching us in these verses unless we're paying attention to the broader context, which I read. Mark is a a clever, purposeful writer. Uh, He's the only one who includes this uh, two-stage healing of the blind man in his, in, uh, his gospel. And so he puts it here for a reason. If you look at, at Mark 8, 11, where we began reading, we saw that after Jesus has miraculously fed the 4,000 from a few loaves of, of bread and some fish, the Pharisees, the religious teachers of the day, they come up to Jesus and they start an argument. Jesus, you can hear them saying, uh, we heard that you fed the 4,000, that's, that's really great, uh, seven loaves, wonderful, couple of fish. Uh, but we'd like some proof uh, to, show, uh, to see that your authority really comes from heaven. These Pharisees can't see. We learn in Mark 3 that they believe that Jesus' uh, power to do miracles was actually, uh, he was doing these uh, miracles by demonic power. And so while the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they're asking for a sign, it's really reflective of a deeper uh, willful unbelief. So Jesus uh, and his disciples, after this encounter with the the Pharisees, they get in a boat and they cross uh, the Sea of Galilee. And a problem comes up while they're they're crossing the sea. The disciples realize that someone was supposed to uh, bring the bread and they had forgotten to bring the food along. So they have only one loaf of bread and this is a cause uh, for uh, quite some concern among the disciples. But Jesus has a different concern. He's concerned that his disciples would not be influenced by the spiritual unbelief uh, of the religious leaders, the Pharisees, or of the Herodians, King Herod's party. So Jesus uh, takes this opportunity to give them uh, a warning. 
about the, the faithless influence of the surrounding world. Maybe you can see the disciples in the boat. They, they nod, uh, they, they stare out uh, thoughtfully across the sea as, as Jesus' words sort of sink in. Uh, they wait for the socially appropriate amount of time and then they turn to each other. But what about the bread? Who forgot it? What are we going to do? I'm hungry. Uh, we're never going to make it. The disciples hear Jesus' warning, but they don't get it. All they can think about is the immediate concerns about what they're going to eat. Despite the fact that they had a front row seat to Jesus' power to multiply a few loaves to feed 4,000 people, as the disciples sit in the boat with the Son of God, they're still worried they're not going to have enough to eat. To the disciples, all they can see is the material concerns of right here, right now. How are we going to survive? Their conversation shows that they too are unable to see. Jesus asks them, why are you discussing the fact that you don't have any bread? Don't you perceive yet? Don't you understand yet? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, can't you see? Having ears, can't you hear? Jesus is using these rhetorical questions to diagnose their problem, their real problem. They can't see. Now, don't miss that. You can be with Jesus in the flesh. You can be part of his inner circle of his closest friends. You can even go to church. You can be blind to the realities of who Jesus really is. Now, having just witnessed here the the problem of the spiritual blindness, both of the Pharisees, but also of the disciples, Mark now brings us to this man in Bethsaida who is physically blind. He was only able to find Jesus because his friends bring uh, him to Jesus and the friends plead with Jesus to touch him and heal him. They probably heard word that Jesus is a great worker of miracles and they're thinking, here's their chance. Now think with me for a second, okay? It's unlikely that this was the only person that Jesus, uh, that came to Jesus at Bethsaida. Right? We don't know that for sure, but it seems unlikely. Jesus often attracted uh, crowds And often there were sick people in those crowds who came to be healed by Jesus. We see that throughout Mark's gospel. Jesus performed many miracles to heal the sick. But Mark records this particular healing, only this particular healing, here. Why? I think because it's meant to speak to the problem of the spiritual blindness that we had just seen in the Pharisees, but more importantly, in the disciples. Jesus is about to heal this blind man, not simply as an act of compassion on this man, though it certainly was an act of compassion, but he's going to heal him as an illustration of his power to heal blindness of all kinds, including the spiritual myopia, the spiritual blind spots of his disciples. Now, the uh, means that Jesus uses to heal the man are strange. Um, I don't think any uh, people in the medical profession in our congregation would necessarily recommend this as common practice. Jesus spits on the man's eyes. Uh, He touches him. And um, Bible commentators have sort of suggested different reasons for why this would be. Um, But we don't know for certain, okay? Uh, So the text just doesn't tell us why exactly. It just reports that Jesus did it. More important for our understanding, is the question that Jesus asked the man. He says, do you see anything? It's a strange question. Jesus asked, it almost sounds like, did it work? And he answers, he says, I see people, but they look like trees walking. 
There's a blurriness to his vision, so he can only make out uh, shapes and, and, and uh, movements. Uh, the people sort of look like Treebeard from uh, Lord of the Rings. This man can see for the first time in a long time, but he doesn't see clearly. And so Jesus touches him again, and the man's sight is fully restored. Suddenly, this man's world ignites in, in a, an explosion of vivid colors and movements. The man's eyes have been opened to the reality of the world around him at Jesus' second touch. It's like uh, he's gone from watching the world around him on one of those old TVs with uh, rabbit ears. Uh, we, I think we may have had one of those a long time ago. Uh, to watching it in an 85-inch 8K uh, screen. Right? Everything is, is brilliant. As one teacher put it, with the first, first touch from Jesus, this blind man moved from darkness to dimness, and now by this second touch, he moves, moves from dimness to clarity. So why did Jesus touch the man twice in order to heal him? It's the only time we see that happen. It couldn't be because Jesus lacked uh, the power to do so the first time. In Mark's gospel, again, we've seen Jesus heal all sorts of people instantaneously. Sometimes he does it with a touch. Sometimes it's just with the word of, of his mouth. So it can't be that Jesus lacks power. I think the reason that Jesus heals the man in two stages, and the reason that Mark puts this story here, is to show us that Jesus, he's both the one who can heal us of our spiritual blindness, but he's also the one who needs to heal us of our spiritual blurriness. Both are necessary in the life of a disciple. In order for us that we might be disciples of Jesus, we need to be uh, made aware of our sin, of our need for a Savior, to see Jesus as the, the Savior who is able to save me from my sin. We need to be made alive to these realities. Jesus needs to come and heal us of our spiritual blindness, a blindness that plagues every single person by nature as 2 Corinthians 4 and Acts 26 make clear. But it's often the case in the lives of uh, Jesus' followers that while our eyes have been opened to see who Jesus is, he's out of focus to us. We know Jesus truly, but he's blurry. We've got a, a general outline of, of who Jesus is, but we don't see what he's like with any sort of clarity. Even though God has graciously opened our eyes, giving us faith to see Jesus truly, we stand in need of having our vision sharpened and corrected. Now, what more specifically does this mean or look like? What is it, what is it like to have our vision sharpened or cleared up as a disciple of Jesus? Now, again, Mark is a very purposeful writer, and he shows us in the verses that follow one critical way that we need to have our vision healed by a second touch from Jesus. Look with me at verse 27. Jesus goes with the disciples to Caesarea Philippi and he asks them a question. He says, who do people say that I am? What's the, what's the word on the street? What's the scuttlebutt? And uh, the disciples say, well, uh, you know, good news. Uh, they think you're a great man of God, uh, a prophet. Some think you're like John the Baptist, some like Elijah. And then Jesus asks them, uh, another question. He's engaging in some catechesis, to use the word we talked about on Thursday night, right? He's probing their understanding with a question. And it's not just any question that Jesus asks, it's the question. For Mark, 
This question is purposefully put in the, in the direct middle of his gospel. Mark's gospel, which has been summarized uh, by Bible teachers as a uh, defense and description of Christian discipleship, he puts this question from Jesus right in the middle of his manual. From Jesus to you as a disciple, who do you say that I am? Notice how personal the question is. It's no longer, uh, who do those people out there say that Jesus is? But it's a question about who you say he is. Will you acknowledge and receive him for who he truly is? What will you do with Jesus? More than any other question, this is the question that will define your life both now and for all eternity. And so he asks this central question to what it means to be a disciple. And Peter Beloved Peter, for all his shortcomings, he gives the right answer. He says, you're the Christ, Jesus. You're the Messiah. You're the anointed one. You're the the promised deliverer of God's people. You're the one who's going to set us free. Matthew's gospel tells us uh, that Peter answered Jesus, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And we know that Peter gave the right answer because in Matthew's gospel, Jesus responds to Peter's confession and he blesses him. And he says to Peter that your ability to confess that I am the Christ could only come as a gift from heaven. In other words, God has opened Peter's eyes so that he could see Jesus for who he really is as the Christ, the Messiah, who's been long awaited. But being a disciple of Jesus, being able to see, doesn't always mean that you see Jesus clearly, as verses 31 and following make clear. Because while Peter's beautiful confession, his true confession, is still ringing in our ears as readers, he shows that while his eyes are open, his vision is cloudy. So following Peter's confession, Jesus begins to teach uh, the disciples uh, that he, the Son of Man, must suffer many things and he must die and he must rise again. And Peter, feeling good about himself, uh, hears this and he's like, no, no, Jesus, just come over here for a second. That's not what the Messiah is supposed to be doing. That's not who the Messiah is. I mean, this is victory time. Here's Peter setting the Son of God straight, or so he thinks, and Jesus responds, get behind me, Satan. That's one of the top ten all-time rebukes. Why? Because Peter's vision of the Messiah isn't clear. Jesus isn't being cagey or vague about what's about to happen. The text makes that clear. He spoke these things to them plainly. Peter just couldn't see it. Peter had a vision problem. He could see that Jesus was the Messiah, but the nature of what that meant and how the lines were sort of colored in, that was blurry to him. All right, so let's pause for a second. And why is this a problem, right? Maybe um, you can understand, I can understand why uh, the total spiritual blindness of the Pharisees, why that might be a problem, right? Jesus tells us that no one can know God or be reconciled to God unless we know Jesus and come through Jesus. And so if we we don't know Jesus, uh, then we can't be saved. We can't be rescued from our sin. So there seems an obvious motivation for us to care. Uh, Are our eyes opened? But spiritual blurriness seems less threatening or uh, less significant. All sorts of people live with blurry vision. Is it ideal? No, uh, you might think. But is it a problem? A blurry Jesus to us maybe feels like a nuisance, uh, an inconvenience, 
Uh, maybe it feels like an abstract problem uh, to you that doesn't really have real-life felt consequences. It's just sort of an issue of, of doctrine, who we understand Jesus to be. But that's not how Jesus thinks of the problem. Peter's dim vision of Jesus has practical consequences. Because of the fact that he's less clear about who Jesus is, he's less clear about what it means to follow Jesus. Notice the connection in verse 34 and following between our understanding of who Jesus is and what we're called to do. The nature of the master shapes the calling of the disciple. Peter, like his contemporaries, expected that the Messiah would deliver Israel from her enemies, that that the Messiah would restore Israel and restore the temple, that the Messiah would rule over God's people, the Messiah would bring about an era of peace in the land. There was an expectation that the Messiah would bring triumph and glory and victory at his coming. Peter was expecting a Messiah that would make the here and now better, a best life now Messiah whose triumphal hour the disciples could share in together. And Peter's not entirely mistaken. The Messiah uh, would defeat the enemies of God's people. Uh, He will rule over them and bring peace. But the pathway to glory was first through suffering. His triumph had to go first through the cross. So Christ would have to die to redeem his disciples, and the disciples following after him would then share in his sufferings. Disciples of Jesus are called to a life of self-denial, cross-bearing, and following after their master. So if Peter thinks that the Messiah is about the victorious life here and now, then he's not going to understand truly, clearly what it means to follow after Jesus as a disciple. Okay, spiritual dimness is a practical problem. When we see Jesus out of focus, our expectation for what the Christian life should be, what it means to follow after Jesus, that will be blurry too. So think about how it might play out in your own life. Christian husbands, if you have a fuzzy vision of Jesus, if you have a vision of a Jesus of generalities, if you have a vision of a Jesus whose suffering are, are uh, in the abstract to you, a vision of a Jesus who won't lay down his life for us so that we might lay down our lives for others, then you're going to get angry and bitter when you don't get your way or when married life is not making you happy or meeting your needs. If my fuzzy picture of Jesus amounts to Jesus being, in effect, my life coach or my therapist, he's just there to to help me feel good, help me live a guilt-free life, to give my best life now, then I'm not going to expect that when I'm following him in my marriage, that might mean that I have to say no to things that are good and that I really want, but I have to say no to them for Jesus' sake. Wives, same thing. If you're not clear on what you need to do and be as a disciple of Jesus in your marriage, could it be because you're not seeing a suffering, loving, cross-bearing Jesus in high definition? If our assumptions, even our hidden assumptions, are that discipleship in marriage, or you can take parenting or church life or work, if, if discipleship should be easy, pleasant, all the time, we're going to find ourselves deeply disappointed We're going to find ourselves confused. We're going to find ourselves angry perhaps at times. 
And we need to trace those feelings back to a deeper problem. We've got a, a, a fuzzy view of Jesus. So what do we do about that? Okay, let's make two points of application. First, we need to be realistic or have a realistic understanding of the Christian life, both with respect to ourselves, but also uh, with other people. Mark 8 illustrates through illustration and through example that our understanding of Jesus and what he means for our lives is not something that we just instantly download the moment we become a Christian. God opens our eyes, but quite usually his way of dealing with us is that we don't see clearly all at once. Like the blind man who who sees men like trees walking. Like Peter who sees a triumphalistic Messiah. As disciples of Jesus, we will still find our spiritual vision blurry and in need of correction. It's a gradual thing. Over time, by God's grace, uh, who God is uh, will come into greater focus. We gain greater clarity as to who he is and what he's done for us and how great the salvation is he's given to us in Jesus. And our understanding of what it means to be a disciple and follow after him will come into greater focus. It'll begin to sharpen. So moving from blurriness to clarity about Jesus usually happens over time. And oftentimes it's a repeated thing in the life of a disciple. And only this doesn't give us a license to sin. We can't excuse sin by saying, okay, we're, just, we're all growing, we're all works in process. Jesus never dismisses sin lightly, nor does meaning this mean that we never address sin in the lives of other people. Though Peter's growth as a disciple was gradual, we see that Jesus gives him a pretty stern rebuke when he's in serious error and when others are watching. But spiritual blindness, whether it's complete, whether it's uh, partial, it's not something that we should settle for in ourselves. But having a realistic understanding that disciples have blind spots should keep us from despair in our own lives when we're not making progress in Christian maturity like we would really hope. It's not coming all at once. It should also give us patience as we walk alongside of others, knowing that if uh, they're Jesus' disciples, that they, like us, will have blind spots and spiritually blurry vision at times. They have the same need that we and that all people have. We have need to have our eyes open, to have our vision restored, to have our blindness healed, so with a, a patient realism, with a humility, our job when we encounter blindness then, whether it's in our own lives but, or in the lives of other people, is to be like the blind man's friend who brings one another to the, the one who can heal us. So if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, Jesus, I want you to know, can heal you, heal your vision for the first time so that you can see him. And his love and his mercy and his kindness and his grace towards you. Ask him, Jesus, open my eyes so that I can see who you, who you really are, a savior for sinners like me, for believers. As disciples of Jesus, we're not immune from the problem of spiritual blindness. Maybe it's not the blindness that we once had, but it's blindness, uh, uh, myopia, all the same. And so we need to see that we can and that we must need, uh, we, we need to go to Jesus for that second healing touch. Do you have a, a hazy, blurry vision of Jesus? 
Does he seem indistinct and distant to you? Do his love, does his love and mercy and grace, do they seem bland? Like someone has just sucked all the color out of a, a masterpiece painting. Are you failing to connect the dots of discipleship in your life and your relationships and your responsibilities? Because you're not exactly sure how Jesus relates to all of these things or what he wants for, uh, from you in these areas. Well, the healing of the blind man is an invitation to disciples tonight in need of vision correction. I want you, I want me to see how gently Jesus deals with this blind man. See how in kindness and in tenderness, Jesus takes this helpless man by the hand, he leads him aside, and he heals him with that second touch. Think of how Jesus deals with Peter in need of a similar touch. Sure, Jesus lays on him one of the all-time rebukes. But then what does Jesus do? He instructs Peter. He goes about correcting Peter's vision. He teaches the disciples and Peter. He teaches them about the nature of discipleship in chapter 8. He gives him a vision of his glory, of who he truly is on the Mount of Transfiguration in chapter 9. In chapter 10, Jesus uh, tells them again, teaches them about the the nature of his suffering uh, for them. And you know what? There are some serious bumps along the way for Peter. Who can forget his threefold denial of the Lord? But we have evidence that Jesus was continually touching Peter and opening his eyes so that he could see Jesus clearly. We've got the evidence of Peter's preaching ministry in the Gospel of Acts. But church history also uh, tells us that the Gospel of Mark was likely written under Peter's influence. So here's Mark's Gospel, his discipleship manual that presents Jesus to us so clearly as the Son of God who suffers and gives his life as a ransom for many. It's a testimony to the healing touch of Jesus in Peter's life. That God had not only opened Peter's eyes uh, uh, the first time, but that he had continued to touch him so that he could speak now with such clarity and confidence that this is the Jesus uh, who I need. This is who he is. This is what it means to follow after him. Peter had received the healing, vision-restoring touch of the Lord again and again and again. Jesus is ready to heal you today, friend, of your dim and dull views of who he is and what it means to follow after him. And we can come to him a thousand times, and he'll never tire of the request, and he'll never lack the power to answer it. I wonder, do you believe that? If Jesus has the power to heal us, if he has the heart to heal us of our blindness, then why wouldn't we come to him to receive his healing touch, his vision-restoring touch again? How How might you do that, you ask? How might we go to Jesus to receive that touch? Well, go to where he meets us. Go to the Bible. Get on your knees and plead with him in desperation for a fresh, clear sight of who he is. And plead with him, not because uh, he is, uh, you, you doubt his intentions to answer your prayer, but plead with him because you don't want to settle for anything less than a clear vision of the Savior. This is a prayer, brother, sister, you can be certain that Jesus is pleased to answer if you ask him in faith. 
How can I say that? How can you have absolute confidence that Jesus is pleased to answer that prayer? Because he has told us that one day, in the climax, in the fulfillment of his plan, right, when, when all his purposes are complete, we'll see him clearly, without interruption, forever. What Jesus wants uh, is that we would be able to see him clearly and enjoy him. Think of John 17, verse 24. Jesus expresses the desire of his heart when he says that what he wants is for his disciples to be with him where he is so that they might see his glory. Jesus prays for to the Father is that we would see him in his glory. Now, Paul writes, we see in a mirror dimly, but one day we shall see him face to face. Now we know in part, but one day we shall know fully. 1 Corinthians 13. In this life, we will have need because of sin and because of weakness to come again and again and again to the Master for His healing, vision-restoring touch. But we can ask in confidence because one day He has promised that His plan will be complete and His desires which He has expressed to us will be fulfilled. And we will see Him as He is. No blurriness, no fuzziness, no blindness, only Jesus, in all his brilliance and in all his beauty. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, what we want as your followers, as your disciples, is to see you with greater clarity and greater fullness we want a, a vision of you that is so clear that it, it shapes all of our life. That we sense the implications, the weight, the beauty of what it means to follow after you in your footsteps. We confess, Lord, our, our dullness, our dimness, but we pray for spiritual power that we might know more of you. We might follow after you more faithfully as we see you in front of us by faith. And Lord, we pray that you would continue to touch us again and again and again as we wait for that day when finally faith shall be sight. We shall see clearly and see you in all your glory. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.